to another podcast of Redemption Tempe. My name is Greg. I'm one of the pastors. Uh, and today I'm really excited. We are joined by Justin Early, author of The Common Rule, Habits of Purpose for an Age of Distraction. Justin, good to have you. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much, Greg. Yeah. So um, we were kind of talking about this before we hopped on uh, the episode, but I, I led uh, one of our summer book clubs at our church on your book uh, this past summer. And, and I think it's a fantastic resource for just about everyone, whether you're a meticulous planner or a spontaneous sort of fly by the seat of your pantser or, or anywhere in between. So um, I want to dive into your book, but but first to sort of frame our conversation today, the reason, uh, and, and we were kind of talking about this before we started recording, the reason I thought you would be a perfect fit for this episode is kind of two reasons. Uh, one, we're in a season for our church of something that we're calling the Formed Project, where the whole idea is that that we're all being formed by something. So instead of passively being formed by our culture, we want to actively be formed more into the image of Christ. Right. So each month, yeah. So each month we're focusing on different spiritual practices to help us be more active in our own formation. And uh, we've been in the book of Exodus for our sermon series. And this week's passage is Exodus 18. And, and looking over our podcast schedule for this fall through the Exodus series, you were one of the first ones that that I was like, that week is easy. If we can get Justin on, that will be an easy week. Um, to to kind of recap, if you're listening uh, to this, Exodus 18 is Jethro's advice to Moses. So in a nutshell, what happens here is Moses reunites with his father-in-law, Jethro, uh, and he tells him how God delivered them from Egypt. They worship God together. And then the next day, we see Moses going about his normal daily life rhythm of overseeing and judging disputes between the people from sun up to base to sundown with people surrounding him all day. It's, it's kind of a, it makes me stressed to even think about that image. Uh, and then Jethro confronts Moses and, and says, this is not good. Um, and he instructs Moses to uh, instruct the people on God's word and to appoint trustworthy judges to help him to delegate this task. Um, so this is like a really rich passage. I've always really loved this as a big planner myself. Um, and I, I love systems and structures and rhythms and, and things like that. Um, but I think what we see here is a few really good things that all I think really tie into your book. Uh, so we see remembering and celebrating the things God has done in our lives, actively doing that. Um, we see uh, healthy confrontation here. So Someone, uh, Moses, was not living in healthy rhythms, and he gets confronted by Jethro, but not in like a, an aggressive or mean way. It was a really healthy confrontation. And then Moses listens to this tough feedback, and he acts. He delegates to, to lead to a more healthy life rhythm. And Justin, in reading your book, uh, you tell your, what I guess we could call your Jethro story, um, about unhealthy life rhythms that you were leading to sort of, I mean, the end of yourself. Uh, can you tell us about that story and how that led you to forming and then writing the common rule? Absolutely. And, you know, I don't write about this in the book, nor do I that often talk about it, but it's so neat and providential that you guys are connecting this with Exodus 18, because in the midst of my crisis, this was a key passage that I heard taught. Wow. And it really helped connect some of the dots. So, so the way, that, the way that crisis happened was um, yeah, I was a missionary in China with my wife for a number of years before I had this calling experience to um, 
to leave the mission field in China and come back and pursue the mission of God within law and business. And that's kind of a longer story of why I came back and what exactly that means. We can unpack that later if you want. But the, the, the key point would be that I really did feel called to be a missionary within law and business. So this was not a neutral decision for me. I, you know, I felt I was following the Lord into law school. And so I went at it, um, like a man on a call and my life was going great at that time in many senses. Um, by the end of law school, I'd graduated at the top of my class. Um, I got the job that I wanted in, um, mergers and acquisitions at an international law firm in the city where all my friends and family live, which is Richmond, Virginia. I had two sons, a wonderful wife, um, spoke Mandarin Chinese at that time relatively <laughs> well, cause I, now I'm really rusty, you know? So yeah, I, yeah. I, I list all those things off because I, I, I felt at the time. And, you know, when I tell this story, I think it's important for people to know that, you know, it seemed like from the outside, my life was going really well. Um, what mm. I did know, but didn't think was a problem was that I was way overcommitted. Mm. So my life was like every other top law school student, a long series of calendar alerts and obligations and beeps. And, um, I always said yes to more things because that's what I thought you were supposed to do. You know, I thought it was a badge of honor to stay up later, wake up earlier, just add more. And so it was all working for me in one sense until of course it came crashing down. And, and what I write in the book and has continued to be helpful imagery for me is that the house of my life was definitively decorated with this Christian content of calling. I was serious about that, but I see now only now in hindsight that the architecture of that house was built just like everybody else's. Cause I was living with the same kind of formational rhythms that every other top law school and young attorney live with. And for that matter, a large, a large portion of America. And as it turns out, those things, whether conscious or not, form us deeply and don't just form our schedules. They form our hearts, our souls, our bodies, our emotional health. And that's what fell apart for me. So it was this early in my first year of lawyering, I had this night where it all caught up with me. Um, I woke up in the middle of the night with what I now know is a panic attack. But then it just seemed like I'm nervous. I'm sweating. I feel really weird, but there's no reason for it. And I managed to fall back asleep that night, but the next night it happens again and I never fall back asleep. And I end up almost at the 48 hour mark of not sleeping, finally going to the emergency room, expecting to be told that I have some serious, you know, strange health problem. But what I found out um, from the doctor was just that I was showing symptoms of clinical anxiety, which apparently is very common. I, I didn't know that at the time. Of course, that's not comforting at all. Um, sure. So <laughs> I... I go home and um, with some sleeping pills and what happens is my life craters in part because I responded very poorly to the sleeping pill. I got all the side effects on the back of the bottles, but also yeah. the, the anxiety and people who struggle with um, about with mental illness know this, it starts to loop and you start to become anxious about the anxiety or depressed about mm. the depression. And between that and the side effects um, and what was an intense job and intense time of life and schedule, um, I started to, I started to get really shaky in my head as, um, to the point where I was showing the really bad symptoms of the, the pills, like, you know, suicidal thoughts and 
Mm. It's hallucinogenic nightmares and huge daytime mood swings. And, um, I got to a point where I remember my wife trying to hand me dishes in the kitchen to put away. And I looked at her and I said, I don't know where these go. And that was a moment I'll, I'll never forget. Cause I remember thinking, this is it. I mean, something, something is going horribly wrong because I can't do simple tasks and all the more important stuff that I really care about being a father, being a friend, pursuing this calling are now threatened. And, um, that launched me into a long period where I, I couldn't go to sleep unless I medicated with something. Um, and so I, I might pause there just in case you want to ask a question about that. Cause I, I can tell you how it got better in a minute, but, um, yeah, I, I mean, it, I definitely had the wake up call of, I was the missionary sent to law and business. And it, I ended up being converted in very short order to the nervous medicating lawyer. And the way I believe that happened is formation now. Um, yeah, that's how I got converted so quickly and so unconsciously. Yeah, I it, that echoes a lot of things that we have talked about in our church, even on the Formed Project, um, and it it echoes even some stuff that we've we've talked about on our podcast as well. Um, it's being formed into the places that we're at, and and there's a, a quote by uh, a guest that we'd had on um, about a year ago where he was saying that um, it's kind of in that missionary structure where the church a couple hundred years ago went out and we were missionaries and we realized that we were colonizing the places that we were going. Um, and so we mm -hmm. kind of went in and we stayed here and we're going out to the pub, the the bars, the pubs, the the different places that people in our neighborhood are at. And we don't realize that we are being colonized. Um, and That's so right. it, it's, it looks different depending on the circles that you're in, but it's this idea of being passively formed and not being even aware of it. Uh, and yes. so that, that resonates a lot. I mean, this is a huge deal. And I think it's worth noting a missionary, cause you know, having been trained as a missionary, we, we know this and, you know, we study this. If you're studying missiology or, you know, you have this idea that you need, you're bringing the gospel to a culture. But you, mm -hmm. you shouldn't be either assimilated to that culture, nor should you just convert that culture to your culture. There's a gospel interaction. And I think that if, you, if you're really thinking about that healthily, you're thinking about um, all the pressures of formation and not just education, right? Education are the things that we know and that we think about that are taught. But formation, those are the things that we practice and that we do and the things that are caught. And I think two things are important here. One, if you don't understand that you are inherently as a Christian, an ambassador, a missionary, then you, then you fail to appreciate that where you're living is a foreign culture and yeah. you will assimilate to the foreign culture if you don't realize that it's foreign. Right. So that's just realization. Number one is we're not at home in our home. We're, we're mm -hmm. an exilic people. So we've got to look around and be comfortable with saying this place isn't normal and I'm not normal in it. And it's sort of step one of realization. And then the next question would be, yeah, so if if I don't really attend to my formation, then you can be darn sure that somebody else is. Um, and if you if you don't take your you know formation seriously, somebody else will form you. There's no neutral gear to being a human. We're not a machine that can sit in neutral gear. Our heart's always moving towards something. And for, and for me, the big realization here was that our heart moves um, very particularly and very strongly through habit. But in general, this is true. Our heart is always moving. There's no neutral. So you can't not be formed. The only question is, well, what are you being formed in? 
Yeah. Yeah. My background is marketing and public relations. So, uh, right. So, you know, that's right. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) There are good ways to do that and there are not good ways, uh, to, to do that profession, but absolutely the goal of that is to form people. And, um, there's, mm-hmm. uh, there's a, a scholar and, and a guy, uh, at a seminary here that <clears throat> a lot of our staff have, <clears throat> excuse me, attended. Um, and, and he did a practice with his kids as they were growing up where anytime a commercial would come on, he, he would say something to the effect of like, what's the lie that they're trying to, to get you to, to, yeah, buy, right. to believe. Right. Uh, and you know, that, that would get tiring after a while because of how many lies that were tried to yeah. be told to believe. But um, yeah, that, that's good. So, so who was or who were the people that were your Jethro in this moment? Yes. Um, or how did that? Yeah. Well, there were a lot, fortunately. Um, so the one thing that I look back on and thank the Lord about this time were that I had a lot of friends and family who were my safety net when I collapsed, which is just um, so encouraging to me and a word of exhortation to anybody we need, you, we cannot live not just well, but sometimes we really can't even live without community. Mm-hmm. And so we just, I'm so thankful. And it's so important when you're in this missionary endeavor of being in a strange land to have community. So what happened to me was my wife and I tried everything. I mean, we tried counseling. And when I say we, I mean, she helped, but it was mostly me, you know, struggling. So mm-hmm. we tried counseling, tried medication. And one of the things on down the line that we decided to try was establishing some real, um, I don't want to say strict because it wasn't strict. You know, I was a man in crisis, so I would kind of do anything, but some mm-hmm. real, some real actual rhythms, um, rhythms of limitation and specifically that were supposed to guide our daily and weekly schedule. Cause part of it, we just sort of intuitively realized that my life was out of control and, and we, we needed some better rhythms. This worked when I was 25. It didn't work when I was 30 with two kids and lots of job obligations. So, and yeah. part of it, um, and I, I wish I knew when Greg, but I, I know for a fact that I was listening to a sermon and thinking about Jethro and Moses in this passage in the season. And by that, I mean a, a couple months surrounding when I was making up these rhythms. Um, and so what happened in short was we started to t- say, all right, here's some daily and weekly rhythms that we need to live by. And I went to my two best friends, Steve and Matt, and I'll, this was the, the next like memory in my, um, of that dark time. Cause it was a year though. I was really low, but I remember sitting at a table with my friend, Steve and Matt, and I remember talking about, I need you to keep me accountable to these habits. And I didn't think any of them would matter that much because they're all tiny little habits that, you know, we'll talk about and you can read about in the book. But I, I look back now and I think I had no idea how much the smallest and most seemingly ordinary habits of our daily and weekly routines actually do impact not just our emotional health and our mental health and our body, but our but our soul and our perception mm-hmm. of who God is in the most extraordinary ways. And so my life began to reflect that change. I mean, suddenly my beliefs and my daily and weekly habits were now intertwined. So education and formation were coming together. And I look back on that time and I just see this sort of opposite of the downward spiral. I started upward spiraling. I started getting better. I started getting more healthy. I started this new, I, I entered upon this new, I guess, um, almost era in my relationship with God, where I felt um, even closer, I think, than I did on the mission field to him and realizing that he was present in my most mundane moments. And this was 
such a gracious time of epiphany that, that I kind of started going crazy about it. I was telling everybody about it. And, um, and then I started researching and then I started thinking about, so, you know, here I am, you know, about five years later, um, you know, and I, and I sleep well and I don't need to medicate to fall asleep. And I, and I actually still live according to these patterns. And now I talk and actually write, written a book about them because I now see that this is, this is our common problem in America. We, we talk about the gospel, but we really have no what I would rule of life. We'll get into what that term means, but we have no common pattern of daily or weekly liturgies or habits that would guide our formation. And so we're being formed into the default American pattern, which is heavy, which is, you know, it forms us in vanity and injustice and consumerism and anxiety and depression. I mean, we, you read the stats and they're predictable, right? They, this is what we become by doing nothing. And that is why this passage is so key. I mean, Jethro turns to Moses and he says, this is too heavy for you. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. It, you know, you need people to bear the burden with you. And when I introduce the habits of the common rule, you know, my claim is um, significant. It's that by adopting some restrictions, what seem like restrictive habits, you're going to find that your freedom comes from within the light, right limitations. And you're going to find that that burden, Jesus's burden, that burden is, is easy. You know, that yoke is light. There's this metaphor of the heaviness that runs throughout the scriptures. And I think this is the hard thing for Americans to understand that we're so bent on, on the idea of freedom being no limitations, you know, personal choice in every moment. Because it's completely antithetical to the biblical idea of freedom, which is you get, you get the freedom you're looking for. You're free to be who you were created to be when you find the right limitations. And, and, yeah. and thank, praise Jesus, that yoke is easy and that burden is light. Through death. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, that's, that's huge. And that is also something I've really been pondering myself. Uh, the idea of like, the push in our culture, at least in America, probably Western civilization, is a push for more freedom, more freedom, more freedom, when as we can't handle it. <laughs> we, no. We're not built to handle that. Um, and we do need structure. We do need boundaries. And that's what Jesus allows us to live in. Um, and I think the thing that I most appreciate about your book is, um, is that, I guess I would put it in that your book comes from below rather than from above. And what I mean by that is um, you could read a, this, maybe we'll call it the second half of your book or the second two thirds of your book only and not get you, not get your story, not get how you came to this and read it um, as a lot of other books are written in a legalistic way. You mm. didn't actually get there that way. You got there because you got to the end of yourself, the end of your rope in a story that is really relatable. And, and um, my own story I've, I've shared on our podcast. And uh, uh, so our son was born March of last year. And two days later, my sister-in-law very suddenly passed away. Um, and since then, we've, we've lost my dad. And so the story of grief, and, and it's not even just being overburdened in work. There's a lot of people in our church that are overburdened in work, but it really resonated with you with what you were saying about having rich community is vital and having good, healthy yes. rhythms to do, even when you don't want to do them is vital. 
Because when life, the craziness of life happens, which it has for my wife and I over the last year, and it hap- is, is happening with lots of people in our church, um, you need to fall back on Christ. And, and that can just be in mere words, like mm-hmm. I'm falling back on Christ, or it can be in practices and actions and people and relationships. And your book really oozes with that. Uh, that was actually one of the comments that I got in uh, our book club. One of the, the girls that was in the book club is actually from uh, Richmond. Uh, like pretty, she thinks probably pretty close because of the landmarks you were talking about. <laughs> really? And that's that's was, neat. <laughs> it's a small world. Yeah. And, and she was like, uh, she's been in Arizona for, for a couple of years now, but was um, it, it made her sad uh, just thinking about the community that she had there and, and her and her husband are building community here and everything. But um, that just really struck her just the way that community is in Virginia. It looks different in Arizona. It looks different in California. It looks different everywhere. But yeah. the importance is being connected with people. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah. And I just want to affirm one thing you said there, because this has been an important lesson for me. Absolutely. You know, all this whole thing came, you know, not through some march of triumph, but through a, a true and almost spectacular failure. And I think, yeah. you know, for me at the time, it was a little bit hard because I kept thinking about with anxiety and I've known people with much worse or much worse mental illness or much worse suffering mm-hmm. or, you know, just something horrible happening to them. And for a long time, I thought, you know, I, I must be just weak or, or you know, messed up. Some, this isn't right. You know, I think what I've realized since is that, um, you know, the, the Lord promises us that we will have trouble in the world. So the yeah. Bible is amazing about what's going to be, be true in the end, but it's also really honest about what's going to be true now. And that is that, you know, we'll have suffering and trial. And then it, you know, gives us the promise that, but remarkably that has meaning and it's for our good. And mm-hmm. I think one, it's just hard to believe that suffering has meaning when you're in it. And two, it's, it was for me at least a lot harder to believe when it was something trivial, but I just wanted to share because you touched on it that for me, a really important lesson from this is not to minimize your suffering and not to minimize its meaning, even though it may seem trivial. I mean, for some people it's becoming a mom and, and you know what, yeah. what all of us got here by having mothers, right? Like it's, it's extraordinarily yeah. common. They're all over the place, but yep. nonetheless, like that doesn't matter. Some people just they're in their first year or a couple years of being a mother and they realize this is grinding me down and they reach the bottom of themselves. Sometimes it's losing a loved one. Sometimes it's losing a limb or, you know, or, or, or your community or moving away or about with depression. I guess my, my encouragement to people is just whatever it is, don't be ashamed of what's bringing your suffering, but rather actually name it as such. And then and then start to try to figure out the meaning of it. Um, because that's mm. the, the promise of God is that it does have meaning. And I stand here now almost in a bipolar way. Like I never want to have this to go through this again. And yet, mm. and yet the Lord has apparently now, you know, my failure is the most important story that I have to tell, at least at this phase of my life. And so there's just tremendous meaning and I can finally see that. Well, I appreciate you sharing your story. Um, because I think that not a lot of a lot of people struggle and they can compare or keep it in, uh, and so people sharing their stories uh, I think really gives a lot of power uh, to those that 
don't feel like they have the ability to do so. Um, yes. So I appreciate that. Um, so I want to ask you then a couple questions, um, sort of, uh, we were joking before we, we hit record here that this is sort of a focus group. Uh, we did have a book club, um, but I, I'm a, an evangelist for this book just in the midst of our church here. Um, and I have conversations with people and I've, I've heard some similar questions that come up that are, that I, I'm just curious to have you speak to. Um, yeah, I'm curious too. <laughs> yeah, please yeah, let me know. Yeah. So um, I don't want to give away the farm here, but, but basically if you haven't read the common rule yet, um, Justin, you break this up into daily and weekly practices and none of them are like earth shattering. None of them are like, I never no. considered doing that before. Um, it's things like kneeling prayer three times a day. And that's intentional, like kneeling prayer, not like I'll step away from my desk in my chair here where I'm really comfy and I have Facebook up and I'll throw a couple prayers up. It's like, no, kneel at lunchtime, kneel at dinner, kneel at breakfast when you wake up, that sort of thing. Um, mm -hmm. Having a meal with others, an hour a day with your phone off, uh, reading scripture before you look at your phone. And then weekly, you have things like one hour of conversation with a friend, curating your media to four hours, uh, fast from something for 24 hours, and then Sabbath. Um, so in talking through these things, uh, I, I'll just start with some of the questions that we have here. So um, there were people in the book club in particular uh, who, I guess I would use the word on themselves, felt, felt guilty because one of the ones in particular was they they couldn't kneel to pray three times a day, or they had six hours of media per week. Essentially, it's like um, the conversation that we had was more to get to the heart than to be stuck on the practice. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, they're trying to basically read the letter of the law, as opposed to like, well, let's look at your heart here. Why can't, why do you feel like you can't kneel to pray three times a day? And is there a different way that you could posture yourself to do that, which you talk about in the book. Um, you know, if you're at work in an open office setting, maybe you just, I think you say you put your hands up on your legs in your lap. Um, and so uh, it's, it's basically that idea we're trying to get to the heart of the issue rather than just to be stuck on the practice. But I do think, and this is part of the conversation we had had, that sometimes you do need to do stuff when you don't feel like it or you yeah. feel awkward and et cetera. So I'm wondering if you'd add anything to that conversation or, or kind of talking about what's the balance between heart and practice? Yes. Um, let me take the practice of scripture before phone as a case study for this, because yeah. I think if you, if you don't understand two things, then, then none of this makes sense in like a participant would say, why would I do this? You know? Um, and they would rightly, they would rightly, you know, say that if their understanding was true, but and the, the two things are an understanding of habit as formative on your beliefs. So habits actually affect your beliefs. Right. Mm. And the second one is the way that failure as a habit affects your belief. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come from both directions. Mm. Um, you one thing you like we we have to understand just about the way that the brain works is that during habit activity your brain shuts down um and this is really useful because this is how you can you know get home in your car without ever thinking about the turns because your brain's working on more important stuff and then this becomes really really difficult for us or it, it hamstrings us on bad habits 
because we know that we shouldn't do X, but that part of our brain that knows we shouldn't do it is not the part that's working really hard during habit activity. So for example, this is why you can wake up every morning like me, like I did during this time, roll over and check your work email first thing, even though you kind of think like, I don't want to start my day like this. I probably, it's probably not the healthiest way to start my day. I don't even want to check email right now, but I'm just doing it. Right. So how, how does it happen that so many points in my life were like, I wish I wasn't doing this, but here I am doing this. Okay. That's habit, right? So it's not a reason necessarily to feel shame or embarrassment or guilt. It's actually very helpful to just pause and notice you have habits that you cannot control because you're only applying your top order thinking to them. And you're just saying, I wish I wouldn't do this or stop. And all habit research shows that you cannot get rid of a habit. You can only replace it with something else. So this is a huge insight, right? For me, when I was doing all this stuff, because I was thinking, why is it working? And what I realized after I read a lot of the neurology and psychology is that it was because I was introducing disruptive keystone habits that were replacing old routines with new routines. So for example, the idea of saying scripture before phone as a habit, that, that stopped me from, I would read my work email first thing in the morning when I was in bed. And as it turns out, I started to, because of this habit, think every day unconsciously, right? This is formation. This is not education. I would never, never have said this, but I've started to act like this is that if, if I don't respond quickly, if I don't do well at the office, if people aren't happy with me, then, you know, what am I worth? So I started to, you know, by looking at my emails, feel like, okay, this is the most important thing about today. I've got to get on this project. Then I would zoom through my morning routine or try to leave the house early or leave something undone because I was just like, I got to get to this. And if I had never seen that, it would have been fine. I could have waited until 10 a.m. to start on that. But what was that? That's formation, right? And so one of the one of the important things I think to realize, and I'm, I'm coming back to your question, so don't don't worry. That you no, you no, asked about right. belief and practice, right? And one of the things that I've learned through this is that you cannot just look at yourself and say, "Self, believe the gospel. You are loved despite, you know." how you perform at work today. You are loved despite the shame of what you did last night. You're loved despite your failure. Jesus loves you. Um, words are powerful and that is powerful, but it's not enough to change what we personally think when we're actually living differently. So when we have a liturgy of every morning looking for our, you know, let's say a liturgy of envy, like scrolling social media first thing every morning, looking at these beautiful pictures of other people's lives. I know many of us don't mean any harm by it, but our brain is responding. Our souls are responding to these images of other people's lives. And we actually, our belief starts to shift. And so anybody who would take any of these habits seriously, um, or, or just, I mean, anybody to wake up to their own habits needs to make that key connection. Habits are like liturgies. They form us and they form our belief. And this is why the church historically has had rhythms of prayer and worship and why every church you look at has a kind of liturgy because um, we're, we're, you know, ritualistic creatures and they form us. The big question we have to ask is, is which ones now? Yeah. The second half of that question, which is, should take a lot less time, but is then, okay, if, if you're, if you are down with that idea and you say, okay, I actually do have liturgical bad habits and I need to replace them with liturgical good ones. Well, anyone who tries this even a little bit is going to fail miserably. I mean, starting a new habit, no matter what it is, um, is hard. 
And especially when they get into our key routines, it's really hard. And so if you go at this with this idea of the point is success, the point is to check these off, um, you're going to fail and then you're going to be mad that you failed and then you're going to stop and not do it again. Um, but if you go at it with the, the point is to reveal your liturgical idols of habit through the day and then try to actually figure out how to disrupt them, what you're going to notice is your failure teaches you something. Um, why, like you said, why can't I actually take a day off once a week? What is going on there? There's something to lean into there. And if we really get this stuff, it's when we, when we fail, we're not beating ourselves up and saying like, look, you can't do it. It's an opportunity every time to be reminded of the gospel. Lots of times I think we don't like failure because we don't like being reminded of the, go- the gospel, the hard part of it, which says, yeah, you are a failure. You have failed, but God loves you anyway. <laughs> And yeah. um, so failure is actually a brilliant thing. Success is the more dangerous one because then we think we don't need yeah. the Lord. Failure is a wonderful thing. And I think when you put those together, you start to, to realize, well, my life is full of liturgical habits. How, how might I disrupt them? And then the rhythms of failure being something that's okay. Um, that's where you start to get into the, a new lens on life where you can experiment with a lot of things and realize that slowly over time, you, you can build new habits that actually lean you towards the gospel. And I cannot tell you how freeing that is once you get to that point. Amen to that. Yeah, you you kind of did a, a, a one bird with or two birds with one stone on that one. Uh, because one of the other, I think there is a nuance to this other question, though, that I'll bring out. But one of the other things I've heard is, um, so in general, this is a, to grossly overgeneralize people. Um, you have people that I've found that are kind of more bent towards marathons. Mm-hmm. And then you have some people that are bent more towards sprints. It doesn't mean that that doesn't cross over, but some people, and they're both absolutely vital to the family of God, the kingdom of God. We need yeah. people that are like, no, right now we need to do these things and we need to accomplish this. Right. And then you need other people that are like, well, it's okay. Let's take a long view on this. Yes. I think my bent is more of the marathon view. And I learn a lot from my brothers and sisters that are more sort of the sprint view on, on things. Um, but some, some of those people to this point here that, that you kind of talked about of the, like, um, it it kind of falls into the realm of, of having a hard time with failing. So, uh, falling off the wagon of these. And so you sprint into it for a week and you do everything. And then the Mm -hmm. next week you fall completely back. Um, and, and it can be easy. Here's sort of the nuance to that. Uh, and I think I'm asking more for a, a coach, Justin pep talk here some, some advice yeah. for those people that, that would jump into this completely fail and fall off the wagon after a day or a week or maybe a month. Uh, and, and would say something to the effect of like, well, there's always next year. And it's like, well, uh, it's February. So maybe don't wait until next year. <laughs> right. um, what would you say to those people? Yeah. Um, I, I love that. I love the metaphors too. I, so I actually think both modes are very important for all people. And you're right. I think one, we, we tend to lean, lean towards one or the other and we, we should really learn from each other because there's, there's a real value to the sprints or I guess the crash courses. And, and so, <laughs> and for me, you know, I was in crisis of course, so I would, I sprinted towards this, but I've definitely known other people who, um, who, who have said, you know, let's take a month and let's just try to do all of these what, what the primary usefulness of that is almost a wake up 
call to your routine because it's like going on a mission trip. It's like going to boot camp. It's like maybe the first week of college. We have these periods in our life and they tend to be incredibly important to us where all of our rhythms shift and we learn something about ourselves. Now, what that is not necessarily useful for is building long-term new routines. So mm-hmm. it's really useful for learning something and maybe realizing you have certain rhythms or certain idols. Think of it like a Whole30 diet. You do it and most no, no, no one is probably going to live like that forever. But a lot of people are going to learn something from doing it. And they're going to be like, oh, ah, I am allergic to this or I am sensitive to this, right? Now, on the other side, the marathon, that's the way that you you actually change. I mean, that's the way that people really actually change. And I think the usefulness of that, and I think this is going to be so, I think, helpful for, for people. The, the brilliance of formational habits is that once you make a new habit, you no longer need the mental energy that it took to, to start it. So you're kind of back to zero energy. And the way that works, again, is because of what we talked about, you know, habits happen under the radar. So let's go back to the scripture before phone. If you took three or four weeks and said, none of the rest of this stuff, I'm just going to start with this one habit. I'm going to find a friend, i.e. community, and we're going to try this together. And then for a couple of weeks, you do scripture before phone. And this brilliant moment is going to happen around week three or four, where for the first time, you don't think about, oh, don't look at my phone. You just naturally get up and you go downstairs and have a coffee and read the Bible or something. And that is where habit starts to occur, right? And so then you're free to start a new habit. And this one's just going to run in the background. And so that, that, that way of change is really deep and really powerful and really lasting, um, where you start to add on little, little habits. Because people ask me, like, you really live like this? And the answer is, yeah, actually, I do. <laughs> I never think about it. I don't think about yeah. it anymore. It's, it's habit. Yeah. And that's the point. Um, because we have all these unconscious things and we need to replace them with good unconscious things. So I, you know, both of these are important, but I would just, I would tell the sprinter, it's great. It's useful. You'll learn something, but you're not really going to change until you one at a time, go slow and go over the long haul in community. Yeah, that's good. Um, well, I could have you on here for another hour and a half, but I know that I want to respect your time. So I'm going to ask you one more question. Um, that is a good one. And one that I hear, uh, it's, this one's funny to me because it's almost like a matrix moment where uh, basically the question is, is this, what advice would you give to someone who's trying to figure out how to actually Sabbath? Well, you talk about this in your book. Um, and in one thing, even on the last question to note that I really appreciated about your book is at the end, you have a pretty dense section of resources and guides and, ways for small groups to do this, ways for you to ease into the practices or jump right in. Um, So those listening, I mean, that's all in the back of the book. But Mm -hmm. even on the Sabbath question here, so I'm thinking of a person um, that I may or may not have had a conversation with recently who basically said, hey, um, so I spent the whole weekend binge watching Netflix, but now I'm not too sure (laughs) if that actually was restful for my soul. Right. Um, so, so the question on the table is like, well, how do I figure out what is actually Sabbath? Mm-hmm. Um, I love this question because Sabbath has become such a gift and such an important rhythm for me. But I'll tell you, Greg, it took so many years and so much experimentation 
And I think mm. we're talking marathon here. All right. When we talk about Sabbath, you've got to flip <laughs> to, to marathon mode and, and think not about what's it going to be like to rest this coming Sabbath, but you know, what's it going to be like to create a lifetime rhythm of Sabbath or, or better put maybe a, a seasonal rhythm of Sabbath, because I think the way that we rest changes with seasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I take a lot from the rabbi Abraham Heschel, who, who once said mm-hmm. that a man who works with his mind should Sabbath with his hands and a man who Sabbath or who works with his hands should Sabbath with his mind. I see there's a lot of wisdom in that. So we're kind of asking ourselves, what do we do to, you know, sustain our existence, you know, six out of seven days of the week? And how can we do something other than that on the Sabbath? So for me, who is a, uh, a mind, you know, worker, um, I, ch- really want to get a physical and I want to get mm. in community because a lot of my work happens alone on a laptop. Right. And I think somebody, um, you know, my friend who, um, who, who's an electrician or now just works with his hands. Um, you know, he, he's probably going to want to read and, and get in books. And I think for parents who, you know, stay at home parents, this is a real hard one, right? Because you can't just, you know, how we wish we could just Sabbath from the work of um, child rearing. But I think from yeah. that, then you have to think about, well, how can I lighten the burden by getting in community? So, so just to put all these together, for example, the kinds of things that I personally have leaned towards is spend some time on Saturday, trying to make sure everything that is absolutely urgent to be done for either the household a rhythm, a modicum of cleanliness, not cleanliness, just a modicum of it, or the, yeah. my office, get it done. And then try to have a touch off moment. So we like just this Saturday lit a little candle with our children. Um, they get excited about it because they know something fun is going to happen. And so, the, you know, my two-year-old's like, Sabbath, Sabbath candle. <laughs> and um, and then, yeah, we do stuff as a family on Saturday night. We do stuff with friends almost inevitably on Saturday night. We try to go to a later service at church, just a personal preference. Some, some of my friends like to get up early and be on the day. We like to like have a slow breakfast at home. And then, and then we do... Um, and I guess let's not, un- let's not under fail to underestimate the importance of this, um, worship. I mean, worship is mm-hmm. part of the Sabbath to, to be in a body, a church body that will draw you into its rhythms of worship. I feel like sometimes that's so obvious that we just skip onto the next routine, but it's probably not right. I mean, this is really the center of where re- our, our period of rest at its core is leading us to worship. And part of that is that church routine. And, um, but then out of that, you know, we go and we have a meal with family and part of that is having extended family there. And we do this every Sunday. Um, and that, that really helps the parent thing. I mean, so my, my week's work is on the computer and typing emails and thinking, and on the Sabbath, I'm talking with friends and family, worshiping and sharing the burden of cleaning dishes with the other family and the kids are playing together. And sometimes I, th- I think it's just helpful, you know, for people to hear our routines. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's good. It's, it's funny because when I was reading your book the first time earlier this year, I, I read that part, you know, where, uh, where you talked about those who work with your mind, uh, do something with your hands, that sort of thing. And that was the one part where I was like, yeah, I, I just don't know if, if I would get excited or feel restful from that. And then in a strange work of Providence, uh, I got a bunch of tools, basically, uh, woodworking tools. And I spent the summer on my days off 
uh, building things for around our house, which I, I never thought I would have done. Oh, wow. Yeah, just like crazy random stuff. And, and I looked forward to those days so much. Uh, and it was during the day in summer that I was doing this work. And, and I don't know if you've heard, but it gets a little warm uh, in Arizona. Yeah, uh, right, right. And it did not bother right. me. Uh, it was so restful. And, and I was like, all right, there you go. Uh, and, and it was just this crazy thing. So I think there really is a lot of wisdom to that. And and now you see in the workplace these days, there's a lot of work that is intellectual work as opposed to physical work. So um, it's cool to be able to, to do really what our call in Genesis was to work the land, so to speak. Uh, I think it's it's really good for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's great. And I think the, the key for people is just you should be iterating to figure out what is restful for you. You might try a lot of things and realize, oh, actually, that was exhausting for me. Um, but once you get that the Sabbath is a, is a gift for you to understand who God is, to realize the essence of salvation is that you can't earn it, you can rest. Um, th- that's a freeing journey. You know, it's, it's like being told, <laughs> go experiment with hobbies, go experiment with reading, go experiment with communal meals and see what brings you rest. I mean, anybody should if they understand this, we'll get really, really excited about it. That is exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great, Justin. I really appreciate you taking the time out to share more of your story and about your book and, and just to be on this podcast with us. It's been really good. You shared a lot of wisdom that I think will be helpful for a lot of the people in our church. Um, if people want to keep up with what you're doing, uh, what's the best way for them to follow you and, and find out more? Um, the best way is to go to thecommonrule.org and um sign up for the mailing list or just check on the website um i have a twitter account at the common rule and the um website will link you to all kinds of different things but um the most important stuff comes out through the website email list i'm i'm only sporadically active on social media so people can be disappointed if they go there (laughs) well and and that's good i think if you were uh constantly on social media all the time then uh people might be asking some questions being that you're the author of the common rule yeah yeah. (laughs) Uh, so it's good to have some boundaries there well that's great justin and and thanks again for joining us uh on this podcast and i hope we get a chance to talk again soon this is fun i do too it's been wonderful thanks greg of course so that wraps up another podcast of redemption tab b thanks again for listening and we'll be back next week Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Tempe podcast, where we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. Redemption is one church in nine local congregations across the state of Arizona. Our vision at Redemption Tempe is to create disciples of Jesus who seek the reconciliation and restoration of Tempe. We would love for you to join us at one of our Sunday services at 9 a.m., 11 a.m., and 6 p.m. each week. You can learn more about us and how to get plugged into the life of our church by downloading our phone app called Redemption Church Tempe or on our website at tempe.redemptionaz.com. And lastly, we would love to hear from you. Please send any questions or feedback you might have about this podcast or our church by emailing tempe at redemptionaz.com. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week.